the Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmer's Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hello, my name is Amber, and I work for the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I'm the host of Season 3, where we hear directly from family-scale farmers throughout California, getting the real information and stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we're highlighting the innovative work farmers are doing to keep their farms safe from wildfire and share methods for recovery. In this episode, we're in Butte County visiting Turkey Tail Farms, a small family-run farm nestled in the Oak Savannah Hills. This diversified operation looks across the west branch of the Feather River at the town of Paradise. My name is Cheetah Chudy. I've been farming in Butte County for about 13 years. Our farm is Turkey Tail Farm, named after the medicinal mushroom that grows here in the wild, as well as it is the first mushroom I've ever cultured from the wild. We love it because it's a choice medicinal. It's great as a conjunction with chemotherapy as an anti-cancer compound, and also is functional in bioremediation. Bioremediation is the intentional use of microorganisms and other life forms to break down and remove pollutants. And it's an important tool for Cheetah at Turkey Tail Farm. He's a first-generation farmer who studied conservation science at Evergreen State College in Washington. I thought that I was going to do conservation ecology and kind of stumbled into agriculture as a way that I could have that kind of connectivity with nature, uh, promote wildlife, as well as enjoy the more artistic aspects of agriculture in that you get to build things as well as eat delicious food every single day and provide for your community in that regard. So it was a way that I could really enjoy the world around me, contribute to habitat quality, and have a high quality of life. Cheetah's entry into agriculture began after college and his desire to start his own agricultural operation grew while working at farms and sheep ranches. So he teamed up with his parents and searched throughout California for the perfect location. This land in particular here in the foothills of Butte County kind of kept coming up on our radar. We have these beautiful oak trees and these oak savanna pastures and these beautiful jutting volcanic rocks that are covered in lichen, which, you know, is a symbiotic fungus, which I've always had an interest in as well. They decided to purchase this special slice of property up on Yankee Hill. And Turkey Tail Farms was born. At the time, it was completely undeveloped. So over the span of several years, we set about uh, establishing running water, power, water storage, livestock fences, and eventually came to build my own home and just kind of took day jobs in agriculture and worked paycheck to paycheck to build the farm up to the point where I could quit my day job and go farm full time. The first thing I noticed as I drove up was that the oak trees were leafing out, slowly coming back from past fire damage. When I stepped out of my car, I was greeted by Cheetah's charismatic livestock herding dogs. They happily escorted me towards Samantha, Cheetah's wife and co-operator of the farm. I introduced myself, and she aimed me towards the new prefab home on site. With the dogs in tow, I set out to locate Cheetah. 
So the property is 40 acres overall. Uh, we've got about a one acre garden. Uh, primarily the operation of the farm is just me and my wife. We are kind of hold to the tenant that keeping things small and diversified can oftentimes be more profitable than trying to expand, expand, expand. Turkey Tail Farm was founded with this fundamental concept that diversity is strength and through diversity you have stability. Um, we always intended to be partially a livestock farm, partially a garden-based farm, and mushrooms were always at the core of it. Located in the rocky foothills, this land isn't your typical farming property. But for our unique operation, that's what suits us. This kind of open oak savanna provided everything we needed in regards of open pasture for livestock production. Um, so we raise lamb, pork, we do ducks for eggs. And in addition, we have our medicinal mushroom component. The oak trees that pepper the property provide the ideal substrate for cultivating these mushrooms. But the produce diversity at Turkey Tail doesn't end at livestock and fungi. We raise cut flowers and value-added herb products like herb salts, tea mixes, and plant distillates called hydrosols. With this idea that diversity is strength, we try to use nothing just once and cycle energy around the farm. At Turkey Tail Farm, they use a whole systems approach and are mindful of the inputs necessary for their operations, while also minimizing or upcycling waste. It's a shift in mentality that more and more of California's small farmers are moving towards. We import livestock feed, which in turn becomes manure, which fertilizes our pastures. The byproduct of our mushroom cultivation becomes a source of fertility for the garden. And when we pull the weeds from the garden, we feed the weeds to our sheep, which then again, turn it into manure. And also in diversity, when something is going horribly wrong in one department, generally there's another department that's doing okay. At Turkey Tail, most work duties are shouldered by Cheetah and his wife with a little help from his parents. For the most part, um, it's her and I, and get support from my folks for some herb processing. The sheep and pigs are largely my responsibility. Uh, the ducks are 100% my wife's job, and then we both kind of jump in on the garden for various things. And then the mushroom operation is pretty much a one-person thing. And so it works well for us. It, you know, it wouldn't work in all operations. When it comes to selling their produce, Turkey Tail has diverse outlets, including accounts with local restaurants, a nearby co-op, and a CSA program. Each week, our customers get kind of whatever the cut of the week is. So one week, it'll be pork chops and ground lamb. The next week, it'll be bacon and a dozen duck eggs and flowers. We have you know a small group of families that are guaranteed sales every week. Uh, we are able to offer them our best possible wholesale pricing. And then in addition, uh, we've been doing more pop-up shops and seasonal kind of sip and shop events. So um, try and stay creative, try and stay nimble. Unexpected challenges are just part of the farm experience. Until moving to the farm in Butte County, though, Cheetah and his family had never lived in a wildfire-prone area. It was a big adjustment. The first year we moved here, we were put on evacuation. That was the Butte Lightning Complex uh, that also swept up the Feather River Gorge. Basically, uh, dry lightning strikes in the foothills so far up that they couldn't get to it. And so by the time it reached our area, 
there wasn't a whole lot they could do aside from control lines. And from then up until the campfire, which is the 2018 uh, wildfire that came through Butte County, I'd been put on evacuation about three times, I believe. And since 2018, I've been put on evacuation pretty much every single year. So the 2018 campfire, it came in November, uh, unseasonably late, uh, as a result of power lines being down up the Feather River Gorge. It moved at the rate of one football field per minute. It started right up here and not too many miles from the farm, but because of the direction of the wind, it swept through the community of Paradise and uh, basically leveled the whole town within a couple of hours. Uh, during this time, we were kind of making hard decisions about what to load up and what not to load up. We fit in as many sheep as possible, uh, turned loose the pigs, loaded up as many ducks as we could fit. We put our freezer on a flatbed trailer and evacuated all of our product because pretty much the first thing that ever happens with a wildfire event is your power goes out and we didn't want to lose thousands and thousands of dollars of product. So we had a couple farms in the Chico community that we have as kind of our fallback locations. Um, unfortunately, we're in the middle of lambing, so we had to scoop up all the baby lambs, separate them from their mothers, and then when we were able to get to the valley, uh, reunite them all. But uh, it was pretty stressful for everybody involved. In addition, all the roads within the county were uh, gridlocked, and so to get our animals unloaded before they suffocated, we had to uh, take back roads. And it was some really hard lessons for, I think, everybody in the community. Fortunately, our Ag Commissioner went to bat for us, and those of us who were considered livestock producers were able to get a special permit to return to the farm. There is increasing recognition that commercial farmers and ranchers need access to their properties during wildfire disasters. Some counties now offer training for ag or livestock passes that address this concern. These programs are co-coordinated by CAL FIRE, local sheriff's departments, and the University of California Cooperative Extension staff. Farmers can check with their local UCCE office to find the best point of contact. And so this was the way I was able to rescue the 26 pigs and 15 sheep I had to leave behind. Thankfully, we had a big plastic trough full of butternut squash that burned halfway down just enough that the sheep and pigs were able to get in and out of it as a source of water and food. Just about day five of the fire event, the winds changed and it swept back through the farm. So my home burned, uh, our water and power infrastructure, so the utility drop that came from the power lines to power our pumps and the entire property was destroyed. Our water tanks were low and so those melted. So we fundamentally couldn't move water. Uh, so upon returning to the property, I purchased a water tank and started trailing water in to sustain the animals. Uh, There's quite a bit of food donation at the time, so I was able to get hay and grain to my critters because all the pasture had burned and there was nothing but ash. This fire event went on for 28 days. It 
burned around 1,500 acres, destroyed 1,800 structures, and uh, by the time it was put out, uh, 86 people had died. There was a, a solid month of absolute socked-in smoke. Um, broad daylight looked like the middle of the night. And so that was, you know, probably the darkest month of my life, just me and the dog snuggling at night for warmth and uh, sleeping in the truck. Thankfully, my parents' structure survived, uh, heavily smoke damage, but it was there. And so from there, it kind of gave us the platform to start rebuilding. Rebuilding wasn't easy, physically, financially, or emotionally. But Cheetah and his family were determined that Turkey Tail would rise from the ashes. And they wanted to ensure that the next time fire threatened their property, they were ready. Since then, we've rebuilt all our power and water infrastructure and built in a ton of redundancy so that when the power does go out, we can still continue to move water about the property. Cheetah knows that it's inevitable. More high-intensity fires are coming. So they've started preparing. Although so-called stay and defend is not legal in California, we know sometimes folks get trapped and don't have a choice. It's good to know what your options are. CAF is collaborating with folks from Oregon State University to learn about the wildfire training program that they've developed with farmers and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. We've kind of set the policy to evacuate whatever animals we can, and then basically the policy is going to be run the generators to keep water running, and then spend my time uh, creating stronger fire breaks using the tractor. Uh, what we've learned is that it's not necessarily fire that gets you, but it's the embers. So I just built a new roof for my barn at the time of the fire, and I just had tar paper up there. And so m most likely it was raining ash that burned my farm down. And during the fire recovery period when I was here on the property, tending the animals. Uh, it was not uncommon for stumps to light a blaze again. And so just having a presence and being able to go out there with the shovel and the hose and stomp out little things. Also, you know, we've learned uh, you got to tape up the vents on your home because ash will suck up into your vents and then light your house on fire from the inside out. At this point, we have around 30,000 gallons of above ground water storage at any given time. Uh, we've got two 5,000-gallon tanks that are our primary storage, one gravity tank at the top of the hill, and then after the fire, we work with NRCS to install a new livestock solar well um, that will run off of AC electricity or DC electricity, so that's a huge asset. And then we have a swimming pool, which dollar per gallon water storage is pretty much the best way you can go. Cheetah says fire safety isn't just about infrastructure and planning. It's also about neighbors taking care of neighbors. And so sometimes, you know, a fire will start up and before I even realize it, it's there, uh, my neighbors will contact me seeing if we need help yet. And so, um, yeah, we're going to have like the Yankee Hill Fire Brigade, I think, up here. And I think as a community, we've decided that um, we don't want to go through it again, basically. One of the big challenges facing livestock producers during a wildfire is deciding what to do with the animals. Cheetah and his family were only able to take the female ewes and baby lambs. All they could do for the remaining livestock was open the gates and let them fend for themselves. Yeah, they came back. I was expecting to lose them all. And so 
it was absolute chaos when we came home. Uh, the only hard fence I had had been crushed in several locations by a tree falling. And so step one, getting home was repairing fences. And then step two, I've got this dynamite sheepdog. Uh, he had never worked pigs before, but he took on these, you know, 400 pound hogs and we were able to round up 26 hogs. The family was relieved to have the animals back safe, but now they had a new problem. With no power and no running water, it was difficult to care for their animals. From there, we just started reaching out to USDA plants and seeing if we could get animals in for butcher because we had to liquidate. And since, you know, had to make some hard turns too, where uh, we got rid of our wool producing sheep because all the sheep shearing equipment had burned and now, you know, we're restarting our flock. So we decided to liquidate, uh, basically just made jerky and then going back in went with white dorpers. White dorpers are a hardy meat sheep breed and they're a critical element of the fire safety strategy at Turkey Tail Farms. Cheetah took me on a tour of his property and we stopped by the mobile paddock to see his flock. At midday, it was pretty hot, and the sheep were resting after a long morning of grazing. Cheetah tempted them over with a flake of alfalfa. <laughs> Who's this guy? That's Buckaroo. Hi, Buck. Yeah, he came out of a farm in Sutter County. Hi, buddy. He really needs to be shaved again. <laughs> oh. Poor guy. <laughs> When I did liquidate my old breeding stock, you know, I spent all this time sitting on the mower and I didn't realize, you know, yeah, it's elbow grease to put out electric fencing, but, you know, time spent on the mower, in addition to being, you know, somewhat a risk for fire danger, is kind of unpleasant. And so what we've always tried to do is kind of this high intensity, low duration grazing around the farm. So we'd run the sheep to kind of mow things down, uh, run the ducks through to fertilize the pasture. And then the pigs come through and kind of clean up any spilt feed, as well as create a pretty aggressive fire break. A lot of our brush clearing prior to the fire was supported with natural resource conservation money through their equip program. In the places where we did that initial clearing, it really paid off. We had nice low intensity fires that just ripped through the pasture, didn't kill any trees. In the places that we hadn't quite gotten to yet, where we did have that ladder material, it's scorched earth and continues to be scorched earth. So it's, you know, a lifelong pursuit. So when we first moved to the property in 2008, it had been pretty abusively grazed in cattle for a long time, uh, strictly winter graze, and um, they were just kind of left to roam. And so we had these massive mud slip and slides that went up and down the hills. And so it's been a restoration project from square one. And interestingly enough, when the campfire rolled through, uh, we actually had one of our best grass years coming off of it because that fire liberated all that nutrient and we had head high oats right after the fire event. So, you know, the recovery of the land, I think was probably the greatest testament to it. From the outset, Cheetah made mushroom cultivation a central part of Turkey Tail's production. One of the great things about mushroom cultivation is there's always something new to try. It's definitely a burgeoning science right now, and fungi are, are having their heyday. They're finally getting some of the acknowledgement that they deserve. And it's great to be in on that conversation and be working with these organisms in a time when we're actually recognizing how significant they are to ecology, to our health, and different ways that they can be utilized in the greater picture. We're kind of having to throw out the rule book and starting to recognize 
that the soil is not simply a sponge that we fill up and wring out, but instead with active biology, we can access nutrients that are, you know, fixed in between clay platelets. And while, you know, plants alone don't have the enzymatic tools to unlock them, yeah, we're starting to recognize that, you know, saprophytic as well as mycorrhizal fungi can really access some of the legacy nutrients that we have potentially put into the soil and are now locked away. And we're, I mean, that's the thing is that we're, as humans, we try to be so reductionist with our understanding of the natural world, and it's just too much for us to take in. Cheetah's passion for cultivating mushrooms grew out of his interest in fungal bioremediation, the ability of mushrooms to capture and transform pollutants. After the campfire destroyed his farm, he was facing a big soil contamination problem. My pump house completely burned down, and I knew there was batteries in there. Uh, we had a school bus and two cars that had completely incinerated. And I knew there was going to be some things like galvanized metals, which, you know, is a source of zinc. So I'm looking around my organic farm and wondering how I'm going to keep it organic. I heard the early Paul Stamets talks and the biodegradation of motor oil using the oyster mushroom. And so that kind of piqued my interest. I uh, started into research about what we call spent mushroom substrate. So that's the material that's left over after growing the fungus. So we have straw, we sterilize it, we introduce the mushroom, it grows through the straw, breaks it down as its food source, produces the mushroom, which is actually just the reproductive portion of the fungus. And then that straw mixture, when done, has uh, potential different applications. So I venture over to the mushroom greenhouses and the plastic had completely melted off of them but the fungus that was in the plastic bags was still alive and growing. And so coming to mushroom cultivation from this bioremediation background, I instantly thought of ways to try and create biological barriers to try and contain some of that contamination. And so I took these partially charred mushroom bags and dug some swales, which is, you know, a trench on contour, kind of a way to slow the movement of water across the land and inoculated these uh, wattles, these straw tubes that they use for erosion control, inoculated those with the leftover fungus from my grow. And from there was able to kind of slow the movement of toxic ash across the property. In the months following the campfire, Cheetah noticed that some of his neighbors, particularly those without brick and mortar homes, were ineligible for some of the state emergency recovery services. And so I uh, adopted a nonprofit umbrella and started to write grants to try and apply this to a larger scale. Cheetah began his bioremediation research with three fundamental questions. One being, what are the nature and quantities of toxic materials in the environment? Two, are fungi functional in remediating some of these metals? And three, uh, there was this kind of larger premise of some people saying that you can uptake and translocate heavy metals into the mushroom. So I was able to secure some funding and do this kind of direct action program where I went onto properties that weren't cleaned up yet, still the burn material on site, uh, test the soils for uh, what they call persistent organic pollutants. And then I also tested for a suite of heavy metals. So once I had those tests in hand, then I would apply fungi to the soil using various techniques, 
somewhat leftovers from my mushroom operation program, but also started special culturing some funguses that are specific to heavy metal uptake was able to kind of get some baseline information about toxicity that wasn't available at the time and start to develop some techniques where I could successfully get mushrooms to grow into toxic ash. So when it comes to remediation of toxins, we break them down into two major classes. One is heavy metals. These are individual atoms. These are ions that cannot be broken down further. The other set of compounds is what the EPA calls persistent organic pollutants. So benzene is a pretty common one after fire events. And so it's these rings of carbon and hydrogen molecules that are organized in such a way that they're hydrophobic. So water can't get to them and bacteria have a hard time breaking them down. And they are potentially carcinogenic and endocrine disruptors. Fungi can be used to remove both heavy metals and persistent organic pollutants from soil. In the case of heavy metals, mushrooms can bind and store them in specialized vacuoles, the same enzymatic suites that fungi use to break down woody biomass are also used to biodegrade problematic toxins. And then we're scraping up the fungus at the end of our bioremediation project and basically taking it to the dump. And potentially in the same process, we're reducing the toxicity of the ash by breaking down hydrocarbons. I'll be the first to say it's an imperfect solution because we're still having to export the toxins to the dump. But what it can do is biologically immobilize these toxins so they're not getting into our soils and ultimately our waterways where once they enter the biological system, they're much more difficult to remove. So the dirtiest of the dirtiest is what I sought out. And then uh, I used a lot of mushroom fabrics. So for some reason, mushrooms love burlap and you can get these large rolls of what they call jute. And so what I was able to do is inoculate these, introduce the fungus onto this fabric so I could go to a given bioremediation site and have a roll of fungus that I could just roll out on the ground. And then ultimately I'd put another layer of straw on top as a mulch layer to help preserve moisture to support the fungus in its growth. So I do this over the period of about six months. I collected the mushrooms and sent them off for heavy metal analysis to see if we were getting that translocation of heavy metals into the fruit body. So I made sure I hit the same spots, following the same protocols that Cal OES was using to determine whether soils were safe and allowable. And then with the samples back in hand, I would scrape up the mycelium and send it to the dump. So I would only count major victories if I got a threefold reduction in heavy metals or better. We saw significant reductions in persistent organic pollutants in the circumstances that we did find them. Uh, in particular, one site, we saw an eightfold reduction in dioxins, which are a highly virulent contaminant. So again, it was able to kind of provide a baseline for further work and take some things that have only really been done in the laboratory and get them out into the real world. Uh, a lot of what I wanted to do is kind of put it to the test and see where the rubber met the road in terms of the hype surrounding it and what is actually achievable. Um, it's a winter practice for the most part. You know, you need good soil moisture for the fungus to survive. So yeah, it really comes down to uh, testing, Testing, testing. I mean, ultimately, my initial goals were to provide a service for the community as well as get some baseline information. 
I think start small is always a good call when it comes to mushroom farming. Uh, anytime I you know, tweak an aspect of my production, I do it very small and wait to see results. There is a tendency in the mushroom cultivation world to want to use a bunch of fancy technology and equipment. Um, and you can spend a lot of money really fast and still be growing mold at the end of the day if you don't know what you're doing. You know, I've become a huge advocate of calcium hydroxide sterilization, which basically it's a pH dependent chemical sterilization where you don't need a propane burner. All you need is a clean garbage can and a handful of lime, basically. And you can sterilize straw and be off to the races growing mushrooms. Despite the many challenges, Cheetah intends to keep looking for ways to expand access to fungal remediation tools and training. He's motivated by this work to help farmers like him that are facing wildfire threats. That's where my heart is. I've gone through it, I've seen the hurt, and very few crops are as rapid as mushrooms. And so if we could find a double-pronged approach where we can help farmers get back on their feet by starting a small-scale mushroom operation on your diversified farm, what have you, and then ultimately you're growing the byproduct that will help you restore your soil, you know, restore porosity, start cycling nutrient again, potentially, you know, reduce toxic ash or at least capture some of these heavy metals. I saw a need, knew I wanted to do something about it, and I think it's helped some people and it's added to the conversation of bioremediation, at least in some small way. With today's high inflation, times are tough, and Turkey Tail is feeling the impacts too. We're seeing a lot of farmers scale back in certain parts of their operation. Um, we've been fighting raising our prices here just based on fuel expenses, because if we raise our prices, we might cost out some of our customer base. You know, we, we got into this to feed people. And, you know, if only rich people can afford your food, it kind of defeats the point for us. Definitely looking at moving more to online platforms for some of our value-added products. We're making our own markets at this point, creating our own venues to sell our product and going more with value-added, shelf-stable products. Cheetah says that if there's one thing that farmer advocates can do to support regenerative agriculture and a whole systems approach, it would be to push for more carbon cap and trade tools. I think now would be a great time for us to solidify carbon cap and trade and make it more widely available. Um, Farmers are doing an unseen service of potentially sequestering carbon, uh, minimizing your nitrous oxide or methane emissions, which are highly overlooked as a greenhouse gas equivalent. So I think we need perhaps, you know, another avenue to make agriculture profitable. I'd never thought I'd have to build a farm from scratch twice in my lifetime, and that's what it came down to. You know, I did all the construction work myself and it was a couple of years of just putting your blinders on and setting aside your feelings. And uh, turns out that's not the healthiest thing. You have to be realistic about it, but you also have to have an attitude that allows you to move forward and kind of try to accomplish your goals all the same. I appreciate that. CAF's done a lot for us in the last couple of years and I'm really enjoying the relationship. Thank you so very much for this opportunity. CAF is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at calf.org forward slash the farmers beat forward slash. That's B E E T. 
where we have links, resources, and photographs. Be sure to check out Turkey Tail Farm on Instagram, at Turkey Tail Farm, and share the episode with your friends. Also, follow us on Instagram at calf underscore fam farms to stay up to date on what new episodes are released and see more pictures from the farms featured in this podcast. This podcast project was funded by a grant from the American Red Cross. The Red Cross is a not-for-profit organization that depends on volunteers and the generosity of the American public to perform its mission. For more information, please visit redcross.org or cruzrojaamericana.org or visit them on Twitter at Red Cross. Are you a farmer interested in being on a future podcast or have a question related to this one? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org. Mm-hmm.